Today on the inaugural episode of Maker's Cast, I talk songwriting, composition, and general nonsense with Joey Frivola. Hi there, I am he. Yes. So welcome to the first episode of Maker's Cast. My name is Matt Pritchett, and I guess I'll explain what the heck we're doing here. So a little while ago, uh, me and some friends started what I like to call a creative co-op called Music City Makers, which is more or less just a venue for us to put the things we've always wanted to make somewhere where they can be marketed to the world. But for me, it's more intently an excuse to do things that I feel like doing in a marketable manner. And one thing I like to do is just talk to interesting people. So as with every other vaguely mediocre human on the internet, I decided to start a podcast. So... For my first uh, foray into podcasting, I have brought in guitarist, composer, generally silly human, Joey Frivola. Hi there. Hi, Joey. Only one of those things is true. I'm just a silly human. Just so silly. I only fake those other things. <laughs> but you're so silly faking them that it works. Exactly. Yes. That, like, screw fake it till you make it. Just be silly. Yeah. Always silly. And then you just are magically good at things. Yeah. And isn't that every comedy from, like, the mid-90s for, like, every Adam Sandler comedy? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know what? A little bit. A little we, bit. We cracked the code. Yep. So, a uh, little bit of intro. Uh, Joey and I met in college. We've almost known each other for seven years. Just about, yeah, 2012. That's weird. Mm. That's a little strange. Yep. Time moves faster when you're not in college. That's true. But also really fast in college. For a different reason. We are ever hurtling toward the heat death of the universe. That's true. Yeah, seven <sighs> years ago, we were not as close to the heat death as we are now. <laughs> I mean... Whether you believe in climate change or not, which you should, <laughs> that is accurate, because time. Here at Maker's Market Podcast, we support climate change. <laughs> uh, dang it. So, related to college, here's a question I don't know if I've ever asked you. Why did you choose to go to school where we went to school? At Belmont? Yeah. So, we're in Nashville, by the way, in case you, can't, in case you couldn't tell by Music City Makers. Yeah. Well, I, I knew I wanted to study music. Yeah. I looked... Basically only at three places. I looked at Berkeley and Boston, which is... The place. The place. Belmont, which from basically since high school and like my guidance counselors and all that were like, Belmont is the secondary place. Like that's the second best place. <laughs> and uh, FAU, which would have been like the local option. So in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Florida Atlantic University stands for. Hmm. And foul. I got into all three, but um, Berkeley was about double the price i didn't know you got got into berkeley yeah i did that's awesome and um yeah it was really expensive and i hated boston <laughs> just as a place <laughs> I, i'm i'm not a fan of cold weather no, nashville, that's true nashville is pushing it for me yeah because snow can exist yeah yeah so i like nashville a lot more as a place i thought belmont's campus was a lot nicer mm. from what i like did for my tours i just thought belmont had what i needed anyway right so it was at berkeley didn't quite seem worth it and was any of that the conception of nashville being nashville as well yeah that's another thing as well because even when i was in um taking those tours at berkeley there was a couple times where they'd be like oh yeah some guys graduated here went on to nashville to do this i'm like well, i could just go to nashville right. and do that <laughs> the rent's cheaper yeah yeah <laughs> there's that boy is it cheaper anywhere but the northeast yep other than california mm, yeah <laughs> Ah, but Belmont, also where we both met, the Jesse. The Jesse? The Jesse. Mm -hmm. Well, but the first Jesse. Yes. Because there are now two. Yeah, there are now two. So, a little context. Joey is in two bands. There's Edge of Reality, which came from just you in Fort Lauderdale. 
Originally, yeah. Yeah, in some version or another. Mm -hmm. But it it seems like, from my perspective, because I've known both of you through these permutations, that around the time of previous album, uh, Vicious Circle, it became uh, more than just a Joey thing. It became distinctly a Joey Jesse thing. Yeah, as far as like the way it was, the way the writing is done, it's usually me and Jesse Peck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the one eared wonder. The one eared wonder. Yes, but yeah, it's not just Edge of Reality at this point because you're also in a band in England, which most of us know, and probably some of the people who will actually listen to this <laughs> would already know this. Yes, yes. In Kairos, formerly known as Synesthesia. Synesthesia. Yeah, Synthanasia. <laughs> Synthanasia? Euthanasia. <laughs> the euthanasia you synth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably. Mm-hmm. Most youth use synth and synth at this point. <laughs> youth use synthanasia. <laughs> ah, silliness. So, obviously, this has been documented pretty well with Kairos at this point. The fact that you were uh, just supposed to be like a temporary touring guitarist and then they took you on permanently. And uh, have you often discussed the fact that you left college to go do that? Like, have I discussed it with... Like, with uh, when people have asked you, like, been interviewed for Kairos and Yeah, such. most most people are just like, you, I see you're an American. Why are you here? <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you asked. And yeah. So I have to, you know, start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was supposed to be there for, be the guitarist for about eight months. And then the guy who I was temporarily replacing just never came back. Nope. So... We never once even talked about, do you want to be in the band still? It was just kind of perpetually kept going up until now. <laughs> I mean, from day two that you were over there, because we were in pretty continual contact on Facebook while mm-hmm. the whole time you were gone, uh, it seemed like as soon as you got there, oh, he's playing Mario Party 2 with these guys. I think he's fine. Yeah, that's pretty much the way it went. <laughs> we were just like, yep, we're friends yeah, <laughs> immediately. And, and the more I've hung out with them, it's just like, okay, this makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's they are good people. It, like the weird little niche of human that we found at Belmont. But it exists in London. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much the case. Yeah. So, obviously, in Nashville, lots of people are in lots of different bands at the same time. But that's presumably a different beast from being in the same band on two parts of the world. I Probably, yeah. But uh, it seems like, at least from your side of it, Kairos is like an every few months thing. Mm-hmm. Unless you're recording remotely. Would that be yeah. the case? Yeah, pretty much. I'm... I'm there maybe these days three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I first joined, I lived over there for like a year and a half. That sounds right. Yeah. We were Joey-less for quite some time. Yes. And you came back and I'd stopped wearing fedoras. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Man, so much changed. <laughs> ah, it was a weird time. Oh, dear. Well, now that we've talked about both bands you're in, we should probably actually plug some stuff. Sure. So Edge of Reality just came out with a new album on f- last Friday? Has it been that long? Yeah, yeah about 31st? a week ago. Yeah, week 31st. Ago. Yeah. And then the album release show, which I was at, was the week previous. Yeah. The Sunday previous. Mm-hmm. So uh, Over at the East Room. Yeah. I've not been there before. That was interesting. Yeah, it's a cool little place. My initial thought when I walked in, and this is not a dig at the East Room, which is a great way to start a sentence, but my initial thought when I went in was, wow, I didn't know there was anywhere smaller than the end. Yeah, but I, I didn't know there was a second floor though, which added something because yeah. I, I hung up, uh, I hung out on the second floor for a while between sets. Nice. So okay, nice. I've never actually gone up there. It was just some tables. Okay, it was chill. Yeah. Uh, what did we talk about? Edge of Reality new album, Instatic. Yeah. Yes, the new album, Instatic. Yeah, available now on all the outlets. All the outlets, including and especially our Bandcamp. Yeah, really Bandcamp. It's seventy-two minutes of nonsense, as usual. Yeah. Is that longer or shorter than the previous? Shorter. Yeah. Vicious Circle is like 78. mm. So for anyone who may not have the background, uh, this is the third official Edge of Reality album. First was Elephant in My Pajamas. Yep. Which I hope enough people get that joke because it's a good joke. Yeah. Yeah. And that was 
still just you technically at that point or was jesse recorded at all no yeah this was before jesse joined i i I wrote this like the summer between freshman and sophomore year at belmont Mm. finished it a semester later then jesse joined because i started playing it at belmont compositional recitals Mm. (laughs) and i was like i need i need a band to play this right and jesse was my roommate how how did the belmont crowd react to (laughs) reality music um i think they enjoyed it belmont again the school we went to uh, it is very music-based, but it seems like the majority of music people there are either singer-songwritery, because Nashville, or, like, orchestral-instrumental-focused? Yeah, or music business. Or Yeah, there's music business, and then most of them will not be music business after freshman year. So if any recent Belmont students who have spent many long hours decrying their decision to leave music business, you are not alone. <laughs> Half the English majors I graduated with were music business. Really? Yes. Ooh. A lot of them. And that's not a bad thing. They figured out they didn't want it and got out. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Nope. Anyway, so uh, Elf in My Pajamas happened. Yep. Then Vicious Circle was 2016? 16 when it yeah. dropped, yeah. That took a good two years <clears throat> or so to write. It was a bit uh, interrupted by me joining Kairos right, and cause, stuff. Because you had theoretically started writing the tracks that would be that as soon as Elf in Pajamas came out. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of the songs on that album are from Belmont Assignments. Teeth of the Universe was. Teeth of the Universe, yeah. And uh, Forks and Spoons. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Forks and Spoons Part 2. Yeah, Part 2. Which was written before Forks and Spoons Part 1 was named that. Yes. I think I understand. Yes. <laughs> so the music of Forks and Spoons 1 was written first. Yes. Forks and Spoons 2 was written music and lyrics and all. Mm. And was just Forks and Spoons. And then Forks and Spoons Part 1 became named that because I recorded a monologue with my brother where we talked about Forks and Spoons a lot and I put it in the song. Interesting. So that, that became Part 1 because it was released first. That's how that worked. That so... Happened. Because the just the music was written for part one. There's there, no lyrics in it. Right. But there, there was no idea that it was going to be about anything. Nope. But when you... but So you wrote the music for part one and then music and lyrics for part two. Was there at that point a thought that they would be connected just musically or not at all? Not at all. There's okay. no musical connection between the two right. of them. It's been a while since I've heard part one. Yeah. And I, I feel like we've discussed this personally before and also just creative people in general tend to do this. Do you still like Elf in My Pajamas or are you kind of eh? Because it was that long ago and you're obviously have done more and better and you're a new human i think there's a lot of aspects of it that are pretty amateurish right as they would be for our first album yeah it's i don't think it's completely unlistenable and i think there are some good moments on it but if someone was like here show me something you're proud of it would be like not (laughs) the first thing i reached for right and and that's just indicative of growth that's a general creative thing yeah i've still gotten a couple people who are like yeah that's still my favorite album of yours so okay i don't see it but whatever all types of humans yeah so uh, Vicious Circle was three years ago, and now in Static, which response seems good yeah, thus far. people seem to like it so yeah. far. More of a shop question I've never really thought to ask about. Uh, I assume that, that thus far, because in Static is really new, and Elf in My Pajamas was a while ago and pre-Kairos you know, Kairos and touring and mm-hmm. everything, I assume Vicious Circle is like the most successful, air quotes, to this point? I mean, it's had a long, longer time to exactly. exist, so yeah, there's that. But yeah, I'd, I'd say... Um, We've probably gotten better initial response on Instatic so far than oh, Vicious Circle. Sweet. So it's been, it's been going well. Mm-hmm. Was there any, like, actually negative response to Vicious Circle? Not really. Just, like, I feel like there's been more people, like, waiting for Instatic carried over from Vicious Circle. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've gotten deeper in the scene via Kairos and True. other stuff. So there's more people who are just like, we're going to listen to it when it yeah. comes out. Yeah, the anticipation is there as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Which has been nice. Mm-hmm. And Kairos Album 3 is coming. 
It's coming. We, we've seen the Instagrams of studio and mm-hmm. such. Yeah, it's pretty much done. Just mm-hmm. about. But like I would say it's like 95% done. Nice. So just a matter of certain things being put into place. Mm. And plugging the album and all the outlets you briefly mentioned, obviously go to the band camp. Yes. But that's something that I, brief aside for the podcast in general, the idea here is that I'm going to try and get all kinds of different humans on this. Not, I mean, even though we're in Nashville and even though we're mainly making visual art on uh, our store, which I'll plug later. Mm -hmm. I want to get all kinds of different disciplines of people on here. So the idea would be to be able to paint broader strokes to some degree. So obviously people in the know for music would understand the distinctions of like what venues for music are better than others and for what reason. Mm-hmm. But in terms of an iTunes versus a Spotify versus a Bandcamp, what what are the pros and cons from the artist perspective? Well, iTunes is going away soon, so <laughs> well, kind of. It pretty much is. I'm pretty sure they've said they're like getting rid of it. Well, the what happened It's becoming Apple Music like completely. But they're still doing downloads, right? I don't think so. Really? I think they're getting rid of that. I mm-hmm. could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what I was told. That's what a lot of clickbaity things I saw were decrying. Was the like, no more downloads, all streaming. But I think that wasn't true. I think oh. it's just like a s- separate music movie podcast store as opposed to just open the iTunes store app. So it's like three oh. separate ones. I'll have to look more into that then, but that's what I've been told by sure. everyone. In any case, iTunes to this point. Yes. <laughs> being what it is. Well, iTunes is more like... You know, you're still buying digital copies of the full albums mm-hmm. to then own. So you're, you're, you know, you're paying nine ninety nine an album, and a pretty decent cut of that will go to the artist. I think if you do it the way we're doing it, I think we get like seventy percent. The way you're doing it being yeah, via TuneCore, which is a a distributor website like CD Baby. Huh. It's one of those kind of things. That's not affiliated with Apple. No. Okay, I've not heard of this. Yeah, it's uh, they're the ones who are essentially digitally distributing our album to everywhere. Interesting. That's why we're on Spotify and blah, blah, blah. Huh. As opposed to the Bandcamp, which you run yourself. Yeah, Bandcamp is completely self-run. Right. They, they'll they still take a cut of your Bandcamp sales, but Bandcamp is by far the most uh, cost-effective for the artist. Yeah, it's the direct connection. Yeah. So if you like musicians and they have a Bandcamp, generally go there unless mm-hmm. they have like a website store or something you yeah. can buy the CD from. And then they directly. probably don't have a band camp, I would imagine, because yeah, you don't want to split it. Probably not. I wouldn't see a reason why. Mm-mm. But yeah, as far as like streaming stuff like Spotify and Apple Music, those are basically pointless as far as if, you were, if you're trying to fund the artist. Yep. The whole point of those from the artist perspective is for promotion, pretty much. Yeah. You want your music to be, this day and age, you want it to be really convenient to find mm-hmm. so that then they can be more supportive once they find it and get into it. And I guess the flip side of the Spotify idea... For the artist, I keep going away from the microphone, I apologize. Uh, the, the flip side of that idea is the fact that, in theory, we keep hearing that over the last couple decades, particularly since uh, CDs have gone less and less into retail stores and into people's hands, mm-hmm. uh, the thing that's making people in music money are live shows. So, in theory, if someone just gives something a listen on Spotify, either for free or for the uh, whatever monthly payment Spotify premium is now, mm-hmm. then that will get them in the door sooner than having to pay $10 for an album. Well, yeah, if you if you can see them at a show and you know you're buying buying tickets and buying merch, that's mm-hmm. like by far the best way. Right. But, you know, that's that has a big upfront cost to the artist as well for oh, traveling yeah. and stuff. So it's like not every artist is able to do that mm-hmm. as much as they would love to or whatever. It's a it's a difficult thing to manage. Yeah, and if you don't have a manager or a, a booking agent, yeah, then for, getting the the show like the label fronting the cost. Yeah. Which is rarer and rarer. Mm-hmm. Rarer, rarer. Yeah, rarer, rarer. Rarer. 
Did you see that Bandcamp just opened a record store? I've gotten like four emails about it. I got one the other day. It's just like, wait, what? Yeah, it's like in Oregon. It's in Oakland. It's Oakland. In, it's in California. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll have to go. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Like, because it, it's weird that these uh, internet giants, the last few years, like Amazon trying to open their retail stores and things, are sort of dabbling in it for whatever reason. Like, I would assume with Bandcamp, it's more a we love this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure what Bandcamp would get out of it is the main thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, from the email that I saw, it's like they'll be selling some physical versions of records just to show the breadth of product that is available on Bandcamp, but it's also like a venue. It, it's Yeah, like, that was the thing that was I found yeah. most interesting. Which, good for them. Like, they seem like a solid company thus far from mm-hmm. my interactions with them and from what people like you have told me. So that sounds cool. Yeah, I've never heard anyone complain about Bandcamp. They're just great to use. Mm. Very simple. Yeah, so sum up, if you don't use anything else, I mean, buy people's music, only maybe use Spotify to discover people. If you like artists and you want them to actually get money from you liking them, buy the album. Don't just stream it. Yeah, if you actively care about funding people. Yeah, which if you don't, I get it. (laughs) That's honestly fair. Because Spotify is very convenient. It's silly when bands are like, or uh, musicians are like, oh, we're going to not put our music on there streaming is killing music it's like no streaming is not going away it's way too convenient for everyone yeah that, that is the way for everything moving forward like, yeah that's all the conversations going on around video games right now is video game streaming. oh really Who, nice. who's gonna take that over yeah 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 it's like google's getting into video game streaming sony and microsoft are like teaming up behind the scenes to figure out streaming so they can stave off the phantom that is google yeah that sounds like a that sounds Yep. Yep. So that's where everything is. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's silly to fight it. You have to kind of can't beat it, join it mentality. Mm. Yeah. So a final kind of pluggy thing to talk about. There is a different album that happened this year that was just you. Yes. My solo but also album. kind of me. Yep. We both wrote this together. Yay. <laughs> Mostly you, though. Well, Matt did the lyrics. I did the other things. Yes. And kind of where you're at with Elephant in My Pajamas as a thing of like yeah that it has some good stuff in it good moments but overall and eh. that's kind of how i feel about my lyrics and gone now yeah yeah i mean i we started those in 2013 it was in it was in sophomore year yeah it was sophomore year is when i started writing the music as well <coughs> like the whole first half of the album was from sophomore year pretty much yes it, is it like the first half up through silence i know interesting except i didn't I, realize that except for lonely lonely was written last that's true because that got rewritten it got right? re- that was the only track that got rewritten a mm-hmm. couple times Everything else was pretty much write it to the story, and yep. that's what it is. And that came out in March? It was the first day of the year. Oh, that was January. Yeah, it was January that's 1st. right. But yeah, for those who may not be aware, Gone was a concept album that Joey released. Your first solo act release. Yep. And January 1, about yep. a world where everyone is gone. Yes, everyone disappeared, apart from one person, maybe two. You'll have to listen. Yep, pretty much. Maybe three, I don't know. Yeah. Bonus tracks. Bonus tracks. <laughs> <laughs> not really. Bonus tracks yeah. are fun. We'll see. Yeah, actually, that's we've we've had that conversation a lot in Kairos recently. Like, should bonus tracks be counted as part of the album if they're Ooh. if they're on the same disc? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's that's the weird thing about all the distribution models, particularly. I guess this is more of a '90s thing of like if you get your album from this store, you get this. If you get it from this store, you get this. Yeah. Or like Japanese bonus tracks, which are, which are kind of pointless now, but bands still do them. Like the newest Dream Theater album has a Japanese bonus track, but annoyingly, it's on every version of it. Wait, I'm not familiar with the phenomenon of Japanese bonus tracks, like meaning in Japanese or Japanese like specific, ex- exclusive to the Japanese CD, right? Because CDs in Japan are so astronomically expensive, 
that bands would do that as an incentive. Right, you get more for them for your to buck. not bootleg it. <laughs> right, interesting. So like, there's so so especially like I've at least the way I've experienced it, a lot of metal bands. You could go on YouTube and type in Japanese bonus track for this band on this album, and you'll find these songs that you couldn't find huh. on your version. Interesting, and you would never have known. Yeah, I mean, you unless you researched it, of course. Such a weird thing that is still a thing. <laughs> so people are now putting japanese specific albums just on or songs on all of the albums i guess my reference being the most recent dream theater where they have one song called viper king that was listed as a japanese bonus track but it was on every it's on every version i've seen of the album so i just wanted to make you feel welcome and lucky yeah like i am japanese too (laughs) i think i'm turning japanese yes i really think so that's a song who was that i don't know it was on either it was on guitar hero 80s was it yeah oh my that's terrifying what the heck are we talking about? Gone. Bonus tracks? Gone at some point. Oh, oh yes, bonus oh, tracks. Yes. Uh, no, I I think my alternative that I enjoy kind of to bonus tracks are secret tracks. Yes. Those I are love, fun. I love secret tracks. I've got an idea for that on my next album. Ooh, nice. But yeah, the idea that, uh, and it, particularly in the iTunes age, mm-hmm. they're really fun because like on the back of the physical album cover, if you have one of those, then you wouldn't really know it was there because it's unlisted. But then there's another track. But I guess, bef- mm, yeah, before you were skipping through a CD in a car or something, the track uh, numbers necessarily wouldn't matter. Like, on in vinyl era, it would just be where it goes next. Yep. And, and it's interesting because there, there are some albums that I've found where the, the hidden or secret track is just labeled hidden track or something like that. <laughs> like, it's it's actually its own track that's listed on the album. Secret. Which, that's no fun. No. But, yeah, at least it's there. And then there are others where it's just embedded in whatever track came before, which yes. is the way I would do it. Em- embedded within as in if you hit skip you would just not get it it's just within the last four minutes or whatever yeah as far as like a digital version yeah yeah unless there's some middle ground that i'm unaware of where you can hit skip and it won't skip the track it'll just go to the middle of the track yeah i mean uh yeah that you would can kind of do that with cds which will be fun but mm-hmm. and definitely with cassettes in my experience as well just mm-hmm. from like uh recording stuff to personal cassettes for my old car yeah i think my favorite is probably so I'm a weird fan of a lot of things. We've talked about this personally before, where like for these really popular groups, I like the albums that most people don't for whatever reason. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Where uh, for me, one of my favorite Coldplay albums is X and Y, which no one likes, apparently. Mm. I've been told. I don't know. There's a secret track on there, which is probably my favorite song on the album called Till Kingdom Come, as featured in Amazing Spider-Man, starring Andrew Garfield. <laughs> like, there, There's a Coldplay song playing when he's like, trying out his spider powers i guess that's what that scene in that mediocre film was trying to do where he's like swinging around on a chain with his skateboard in a warehouse or something yeah that's i remember that scene that happened that was a coldplay song and i was like oh that yeah andrew garfield is a sick skateboarder kid so sick yeah god bless andrew garfield he is a good actor those those films were cash grabs and we all know it we don't need to talk about anything else yeah you hear that jesse But he, that's not why he likes them. No, but... He likes them for one specific one reason. One very specific reason. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him, but don't watch it. I, well, don't, I don't know if you actually watched it yet, but don't watch it. <laughs> and we should probably explain what his reason is. Emma Stone. Yes. <laughs> that's the whole thing. Because she she is a wonderful actress. Yes. She actually is. She God, is very good. God bless La La Land. Mm-hmm. Which is hard to say. God bless La La Land. La La Land. Yes. La La Land is a god tier movie. It's pretty good. It's a good, good movie. Damien. Damien. You, you want to be on the show? Yeah. <laughs> Damien, have your people contact <laughs> our people. Hey, hey. Our people is me. Contact yes, Damien. Contact Matt Pritchett at <laughs> Matt's email at gmail.aol. Yeah, find the Twitters. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Dim Twitters. Yeah. So across the fact that 
ostensibly by the end of the year, there's going to be three albums out with your name on it. You're in two bands and have solo stuff. There's sort of a, a thread in so far as style, just because it's all under the prog umbrella. Mm-hmm. So, again, something I don't think I've ever thought to ask you. When you started getting interested in music, did you find that the things you wanted to write suited that realm? Or did you hear prog and go, yeah, I want to make that? A little bit of both, I would say. My start was pretty much wanting to play really fast on the guitar. Because mm. I heard Dragon Force and was like, this is, <laughs> this, is the, this is the pinnacle of human of human ability. Hey, Guitar Hero 3. No, before Guitar Hero 3. Oh, it no. Was because of... Um, See, I, I used to be, well, I still am, I still play DDR quite a lot. Yes. And whenever I didn't have access to a DDR game, I would play Flash Flash Revolution, which was a browser-based... Like arrow keys? Step mania, basically. Yeah, using the arrow keys to play DDR. And because you're not using your actual feet, the actual charts on those songs are pretty much complete gibberish. See, this is an audio podcast, so you can't see the face I made when he just said arrow keys and flashed DDR. Yep. Wow, it's a real thing. That is that's not surprising at all, but fascinating. Did yep. you pe- did you play Tap Tap Revolution on the early days of the App Store? Very briefly. I thought it sucked right it, away. It sucks real hard. Yeah, it's bad. Not a good time. But um, yeah. So Fury of the Storm was on. Yeah, was on that. Fury of the Storm. And basically, I hit play immediately, failed, but just kept listening to the song. <laughs> <laughs> so un- uh, unlike Guitar Hero, you wouldn't just hear. Gunk, 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 gunk. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was just, just arrows, just like miss, 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 miss. Right. And, I was, and I was like, I'm not even gonna play. I'm just gonna listen. Yeah, who cares? And then I listened, and I was like, this, this is impossible. How hmm. are people? This is what a guitar sounds like. <laughs> yeah, and that seems to be like one of the defining features across sort of the the prog metal spectrum is just instrumentality and musicianship yeah if if there's one thing that kind of threads it all together is they value the whole genre values playing technical prowess i technical guess technical prowess yeah which you know to different degrees and people interpret that phrase differently mm-hmm. like some people may value certain aspects of it more than others like it's not all just sh- dragon force shredding all the time mm-hmm. and if you look back into like 70s and 80s when you get into the earliest things that we would now call prog and metal it seems like they were much more defined where now it seems like you know, obviously bands will choose the genre that they think their sound is, but it seems like those lines, especially within that spectrum, have blurred a lot. Yeah, I definitely think so. I, I almost wonder if that's, I don't know this for sure, but I, I theorized in my head that it's due to just the internet. And yeah. just be, it's so much easier to be exposed to so many different things. Mm-hmm. You don't have to find your music via the radio or even just by going to a record store and selecting albums out. Now you can just find music so easily. It's very easy to have your influences come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think genres are not becoming less important, but they kind of are. They're blurring, certainly, more than ever. I think beyond the top 10 chart of any given genre, there's a lot of blurring. Because, I mean, uh, look back even, well, every, like, 20 years or so, country comes back in vogue. Sure. So we have the conversation again of, like, is Taylor Swift top 40 or is she country? (laughs) Well, it's both, depending on the album, depending on the song for her half the time. I don't know, like, exactly her timeline but i definitely know some songs of hers that are yeah that's a country song and yeah. others that are there's Doesn't no, really hint, no, like no hint of country to be found doesn't like, seem like it it's just pop music mm-hmm. so in the current scene from your perspective you know whether europe or here are there like distinct factors between a prog or a metal because obviously within those communities you have specific things especially like when you get into uh, the black metal and all sorts of things yeah I, I would say actually um if you were to just say prog in America versus in England, the natives in each place would go to different bands. Interesting. So it's like punk and new wave. Kind of, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so like, even if you said, 
to a Prague fan, I like Prague in the U.S. Mm. They might think of Rush, I would say Dream Rush. Theater, and if depending on how young they are, they might say Animals as Leaders or Yes. Uh, well, yeah, Yes is obviously, but um, I feel like the people in America will generally go to newer bands a lot faster. Really? Than in England, where it's much more like they'll think of the classics and even more like obscure bands from that era, mm. like Genesis, Yes, uh, Gentle Giant. <laughs> um, King Crimson? King Crimson. I, I, this is a, yeah, once you go far enough back, I start to lose my... Sure. So what what would the alternative be in England? Would it be progressive rather than prog? There, there is kind of a, uh, a topic like, is there a difference between progressive music and prog? Because the idea being, you know, prog is bands that want to sound like Yes or Genesis, like those oh. bands. Progressive being like actually taking the, the name of the genre seriously and right. trying to do something new. Making leaps and bounds in the musical genre yeah, yeah. trying to anyway mm-hmm. yeah. interesting so and and therefore the distinction of metal would be like the the specific sounds well metal yeah metal is more about how heavy are you <laughs> right essentially yeah how, how distorted are your guitars mm-hmm. and it's more of a production thing yeah and again sort of the, the the insular stuff of prog and metal communities from the outside i don't know that people get what metal fans are like hmm. Is the, you know, there's the image of, I think mainly from the 80s, the, the 80s punk scene with you know, the, the metal and the pins and the big hairs and things, mm. of this like really abrasive counterculture for metal. But like th- this is for people who don't listen to it and don't know the people that like metal. Yeah. Because I was one of those people until college. Gotcha. Until I started hanging out with like, you and Jesse and uh, name drop some other Nashville folks, Rocky Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seabass. Yeah, I mean, those people exist for sure. Oh, but yeah. It's... um. I don't know, at least in my experience, metalheads are mostly kind of nerdy. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I think that plays into the technicality of it. Mm-hmm. Like, w- when you get to the technical efficiency of it, it's the, the sort of obsessive people who are into that. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I've been surprised by is sort of the the absurdity that seems to run through all of it. Like, when you look at, uh, like, a Ziltoid. Yeah, well, <laughs> once you get into, like, Devin Townsend, then you he's, he, he's his own weirdo. He, yeah, he's, he's a... He's a man. Yes. I'm a big fan. But <laughs> but the fact that that kind of person has reached such heights mm-hmm. in those realms, I think, speaks to the fandom to some degree. It does, yeah. And I think I think a, I think a lot of people appreciate about his stuff, especially like his Ziltoid or even some of the Strapping Young Lad stuff, is um, he kind of took the aesthetic of metal and made it not so deadly serious. Sure. He makes it just peak absurdity while still retaining the brutality and the emotional, like catharsis of just like slamming your ears with right. with sound yeah the music is still incredibly effective but it doesn't take the image too seriously exactly yeah. yeah which you know maybe maybe nowadays there's less of a less of a pressure to do that maybe originally it's like oh metal it's this movement where you have to be all like right. all the time well and, and again i mean i don't have as much experience in those musical realms but i've done a lot of research into like first gen punk mm-hmm. and first gen punk was also seen as like this counterculture where oh they do awful things and and for the most part they were mostly just silly yeah and like, if you look back on not first gen punk or metal but someone like alice cooper yeah who at the time was viewed as this satanic monster mm-hmm. and if you listen to the music it's so tame it's just like it you could barely put it on a hard rock station it's really good i love alice cooper but when i first found out that that's the way he was viewed after mm-hmm. hearing his music it didn't make any sense yeah i mean when you figure that the beatles were considered heavy when they came out yeah have you ever seen goldfinger no no uh there's a joke in goldfinger right at the beginning where like the 
ex-woman that Bond was with at the beginning of the film uh, was listening to the radio really loud, and I think it's supposed to be Beatles-esque, and they say something about the Beatles, and Sean Connery says, well, the Beatles aren't to be listened to without headphones and earmuffs. As though they were so loud and abrasive. Yep. <laughs> Those shaggy-haired heathens. Yep. For, that's what I'm told they, it, they came across as at the yeah. time, which is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. But where someone like an Alice Cooper, and I think more of the, the, the first-gen metal crowd, like your Black Sabbaths, it was the image and the stage shows that really set people off, you know, where they have all the crazy makeup and the fake blood and mm-hmm. violence and things where it, it's theatrics. Yeah. It's a theatrics and it's like the macabre and the, the absurdity again. It's, yeah. it's just, look how silly this is. Obviously we're not killing each other. I, well, I think silly is part of it, but also um, I think people generally get into that, that aesthetic completely seriously. Oh, that's very true. Hot topics still exist for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, the heaviness and the, abrasiveness of the sound is very adrenaline pumping right which is why moshing is the thing yes and that's a big outlet for people in the metal community yeah that's one of the other things that i was fascinated by the more i know uh people in that realm is that there's an etiquette to like mosh pits and Mm -hmm. things and like if you broach that etiquette you're kind of like gently pushed out and be like no yeah, you're that, you're going too hard. That's not what we're doing here. We're not trying to hurt each other. I, I have heard stories of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never been a mosh mosher, but no. But I have. I've seen that happen, and I've heard people talk about it. So that's a real thing. Yeah, I, I saw some story that was circulating like the, the Facebook shares a few weeks ago about uh, on the topic of dispelling the myth that uh, metalheads are abrasive and awful. Uh, that some jerk threw like an underage like teenage girl who was at a show into a mosh pit. Oh, and immediately the the people at like the front line into which she was thrown were like, whoa, 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 stop. She is not supposed to be here. Who did this to you? And she pointed him out and they they took him outside. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Nope. So, yeah, the the sort of social standings around it fascinate me. Yeah, it's as an outsider. It's a whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. But the other thing about I think heavier music in general that fascinates me are the genre names. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that there are all these little they're sort of prefixes and suffixes that you can put together in any combination and people know what the sound might be. Metal in particular is the most anally subgenred, subdivided <laughs> genre that, that probably exists. Right. Like, like there are, there's like whole memes about, <laughs> sure. about the way metal subdivided. What is the most specific or ridiculous one you oh, can God. think of? I don't know. There's like pirate metal. I was going to say pirate metal because that sounds That's awesome. That's a real thing. It is. It's yep. great. It's a, whole, it's a whole thing. I love There's it. There's Viking metal. Uh, uh, what's Buckethead? Oh, God. Buckethead <laughs> is just Buckethead. Not even most. Not even all his stuff is metal. No. He's just a guy mm-hmm. who has like 500 albums. And does Edge still think of themselves, Edge Reality again, mm-hmm. think of them, still think of themselves as art metal? Is yeah, it? that's the that's the closest we could let, we landed on. Mm-hmm. I think we would all prefer to just not call ourselves sure. anything, but... But in choosing that over anything else, wh- why? Oh, versus just some prog. The the title of prog is just kind of a bit, it has a bit of a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth. Okay. So we tried to avoid that as much as possible, because there's no reason to call us that. Like, it's just a name. Right. So. And it's also, I guess, not as descriptive as other things to yeah. some degree because of like how, we, you know, like, like I said, it's for the people who go to like Genesis and Yes, yep. primarily when they think of prog. That's not what you sound like. That's not what we sound like. So. <laughs> And I guess, uh, depending on the song, Edge also has a heaviness to it that would lead to metal. Yeah, is def- we're definitely more metal than rock, I mm-hmm. would say. Yeah, but the the intentionality and the sort of overarchs and narratives leading to the art label, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just the whole, 
because we don't really do you know by the books metal either so it, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that anything edge of reality is by the books yeah that's the, that's the idea that would be by design <laughs> yeah yeah that's the other uh thing that sort of carries over across all of prog progressive what have you is this and, and some metal as well where it blends is this love of narrative mm-hmm. i think yeah i'd say that's the truth yeah do you think there would be any connection there for you personally insofar that, you know, that's where you started out writing music and now you're trying to do film scoring and so, and because they both deal with emotional narrative? I think I kind of I think I always had this bet towards music I write being narrative based. Mm. Even since like I first started, I would always kind of base them on stories that I had in my head. Mm. And even even like when my music sounded like nothing because i was bad at it and it was all recorded in guitar pro yes <laughs> way back in the day like my dad would, or whoever happened to hear it would be like oh it sounds like a film score huh and i'd be like what does that even mean all right, right sure whatever dad this is a rock song <laughs> <laughs> said 12 year old joey <laughs> which is a great uh a great sentence in general and also a great sentiment because i know your dad yeah yeah and how infinitely supportive <laughs> of your strange music yeah is. exactly so many people like over the years have been like, oh, your music sounds like film music. It sounds like a superhero theme or whatever. Huh. And, I, and I'm just like, okay, I didn't even try to do that. But. I don't think I would have pegged that. That's odd. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so at what point, because uh, obviously you have recently scored a couple student films, mm-hmm. uh, mainly for Belmont people? Yeah. Yeah. And so what in particular, if anything, led you to think, okay, I want to try that? Originally, it was because people kept saying that to me. <laughs> And I was like, maybe I could be good at this. And I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't say I really properly even got into movies until like maybe right before college. Right. Was when I started actually taking them seriously and Mm -hmm. like started, oh, I can kind of think of these the way I think of music. Right. And around that time, really, it all goes back to Danny Elfman. So there he is. Who is one of my absolute biggest influences uh, across everything to do with life. What I should have done before we recorded this was written down some kind of drinking game. For for the things that either I will always bring up, you will always bring up, or both. Danny Elfman would have Danny been Elfman on there. would have been on your list. Yes, it would have. I am a, I'm very obsessed. If you get if you spend any time with me, I will show you copious amounts of Danny Elfman. Or on your Facebook page. Yes. But yeah, there's so there's two instances that I can like recall where it's like where I realized that I was actually thinking of film music and I didn't realize it. Mm. One of them being his opening titles to the first Spider Man movie, the first Sam Raimi Spider Man oh, movie. I always forget that was him. Yep. It's so good. It's so good. And what made me think of it was, I think it was when I saw the first Avengers in theaters with yeah. my parents. And, you know, the, Marvel's always had that kind of flickering comic panel logo. Yep. And I just remember watching that going, man, this logo is just not as cool as I remembered it being. And I kind of didn't think anything of it. And then I rewatched the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, and I realized why I thought that was that it didn't have that music under it. Shit. Yeah, just those little drums and the that string. And suddenly that logo is just the coolest thing of all time. And so I was like, oh, cool. And Danny Elfman. And I'm like, oh, I've heard that name before. Why do I know that name? And the reason I knew that name is because he did another movie called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, he did. Which I was very obsessed with that book when I was little. And therefore, by extension, was obsessed with that movie because it was very close to the book. Strangely so. Yeah. And I loved all the songs and music in it. So I listened to them and I had the album with this. I, I specifically went on iTunes and bought the Oompa Loompa songs. Like I didn't buy the <laughs> whole score, but it was, you know, it was under Danny Elfman. So sure. I knew that name from that. And then I connected those two dots. I was like, oh, this guy's been in my life this whole time. That's actually an effect of the iPod and iPhone generation I've never thought of is that that kind of thing where you have to or you often do search by artist or see an artist name scrolling. Mm-hmm. 
where you wouldn't always get that on a radio or even in like your six CD changer or something. All all these names are in one spot. That's odd. That's true. Yeah. So would you say that like uh, Danny Elfman was the first time you n- noticed a score happening and yeah. its effect? That was kind of the part where I really started to think about the music when I was watching movies. Mm. And his name was just always like the the one that was in my head because he was like the first name I knew who did that and who, I knew I liked his stuff. Right. And so anytime his name would pop up in the credits, I'm like, hey. Mm-hmm. And it would always happen where I'd be like, I'd be like, man, that was really good. Who was that guy who did the music in this? Boop, Danny Elfman. Okay. It just kept happening. I was like, okay, clearly I something about this guy's style like appeals to me. A pattern emerges. Uh-huh. And like you, he went. He started off in a weird rock band. Yep, true. Oingo Boingo. Who I only got into recently. The Mystical Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Right? Yeah. Which is their full name. And I well, know that. Well, these are different things. Wait, what? Yeah, so the Mystical Knights of the Oingo Boingo is a theater troupe that he was in. What? A traveling theater troupe. I was misinformed. Yep, that then disbanded and he started a started Oingo Boingo, which is huh. the, which is the new wave band. Okay. Different things. Interesting. He's English, right? No, he's, he's from not. California. See, I always pegged him. I guess because Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is Tim Burton English? I, I don't think he is. I think so. I think anyone surrounded by Johnny Depp is just questionable. <laughs> I don't think Johnny Depp is English. <laughs> no, exactly. But a lot of people think he is because of pirates. Oh, uh, yeah. No, he's American, but a lot of people always question. No, yeah, I think all three of them are American. <laughs> Maybe. I think so. Let me double check this. Let, I, you're right on Elfman. I think Burton's the only one in question. Okay, let's see. I think he might be English and lives in New York. Or I'm making that up. He went to California. Did he? I don't know. Actually, I don't know that for sure. <laughs> Welcome to the Misinformation Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely worked at Disney. I know that for sure. Yeah, true. And Burton is an American filmmaker. Ah, I'm a fool. <laughs> Darn it. I, mm, mm. Tim Burton is a whole topic we could have right now. Oh, man. I don't know if I want to. That's okay. It's a hot topic, you it, could say. Well, for us specifically, it's a hot topic yeah. because people love Tim Burton and he doesn't seem to jive with us. No. Which is weird, because I love every score that has ever been in any of his movies. Well, that's a Danny Elfman problem. I know. <laughs> also, Meet the Robinsons. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. That could, so many. Good Will Hunting. I've been obsessed with that one recently. I didn't know that was him. I've, I've actually not seen Good Will Hunting. Oh, really? No, never. I heard. recommend. Yeah. That, I'm trying to think if I've seen more dramatic Robin Williams or funny Robin Williams. In movies? Yeah. That's true. Because I've seen Dead Poets. You call that dramatic? More so, yeah. Because yeah. he, he's... The, the film is dramatic, even though he's being... You know, yeah, he's uh, a very large him. Robin Williams. Have you seen uh, Good Morning Vietnam? No, I want to. That okay. looks cool. It's pretty similar to Dead Poet Society and okay. like, you know, what you're getting out of it. I just learned from that Lindsay Ellis video, the Aladdin video, that that was like his first, oh, this guy can do different yeah, stuff. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that, like that too. But yeah, Gobo Hunting, I think he won the Oscar for that. Ooh. So he's very good in it. Okay, that makes sense. And he tells, he tells Matt Damon it's not his fault. <laughs> a lot. All the time. Yeah. Really just for one scene. But <laughs> yeah. Now my brain went to Ben Affleck, and therefore I went to the new Batman. Right. I've not seen any of it. Well, uh, neither have I, but I I don't want to make this a topical podcast, but I do love talking about this particularly. Have you seen who the new Batman is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that for real? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, it, it was like between him and Nicholas Holt, for anyone who doesn't know or doesn't remember, because this is could be 10 years in the future because it's on the internet, it's Robert Pattinson of Twilight and other things besides Twilight, uh, who's playing Batman now. It was between him and Nicholas Holt who is a uh, beast in the new X-Men movies. He played oh, okay. he, he played Tolkien in that movie from like three months ago that no one saw. Is it already out? I think so. I think oh. it came out in like April. Oops. <laughs> I don't think anyone saw it, and the Tolkien estate, to my knowledge, did not sign off on it. Then 
Meh, who cares? All right. The, the other funny thing about the Tolkien movie, though, is that all of the ads are so intent on getting people to know the correct way to say his name, and I'm still not saying it. Tolkien. Tolkien. Yeah. It's like, I know that in my brain, but it's hard. Yeah, I always like Tolkien. That's fair. There are just so many. Yeah. I've heard Tolkien. That's what I say. Yeah. Because I don't think about it. Yep. <laughs> I think that's how I first heard it, probably. It's like, it's like how, um, and after one of their concerts, uh, Rush had a, Rush used to do a lot of big screen, like, video sketches at different points in their show as part of their live show. Oh, is it, okay. And I know they, had, they had one at the end of one of their tours where the guys from, what's that movie? Uh, Spinal Tap? No, no, the one. I don't know why I reached for that. No, the, what's the, uh, I Love You Man? Is that what it's called? I don't know. The one where the one where there's the two guys who are into Rush. Are they into Russian? I love you, man. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, they go and backstage, and they're like, "Oh, I love you." It's it's Getty Lee and Neil Peart, and feels like, and he's like, "It's it's Peart." Oh. And they're like, "No, yeah. I don't think it is." And he's like, <laughs> "I have actually seen this sketch." Yes. With Jason Segel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because I used to say Neil Peart until I saw that live, and I was like, "I guess it's Peart." <laughs> I suppose so. If they're dedicating this to that. Mm-hmm. He would know, I suppose. Yeah, they ate a sandwich. Now I'm just thinking about how much better the Marvel logo would look if Danny Elfman did the score on all of them. Yeah, he did the score on Age of Ultron. Really? He co-wrote it with someone. Huh. Which is weird. He doesn't co-write in general. <laughs> the worst Avengers. Yeah, I've heard it's bad. Never seen it. It was fine. It it was a very mediocre film in general, and also Joss Whedon hated making it. Apparently. Yeah, I heard it was some some production hell. Well, I mean, some people just... I'm sure the Marvel system, and it is a system at this point, works with some creators more than others. And yeah. Joss has always seemed like a vision kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as with Edgar Wright making Ant-Man, vision-oriented people and like a giant corporate entity who want to make all these films make sense together don't really mesh. Yeah. That makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, yeah, Brian Tyler and Danny Elfman. Oh, it was Brian Tyler. Yeah, yeah those he, two together. He did Iron Man 3. Oh, okay. Which I know because I have the credit song that sounds like a 70s cop show theme from Iron Man 3 on my phone. Is that is that him as well? Yeah, it's called Can You Dig It? It's very entertaining. Oh, nice. My br- Does your brain do this thing where you start out thinking about one song and then it transitions into another song that your brain thinks they could be the same, but they're not? No, I do, you un- it does. do you understand what I'm saying? I, I mean, I can imagine what you're saying. Is every time I think about the score to Spider-Verse, I wind up in Can You Dig It? I see. I don't know. That's just what happened. Who did the score of Spider-Verse? Uh, it was a man named Daniel Pemberton, who has not done a whole lot of other things. He is an English person, and I know that one's true. All right. I am right about that one. <laughs> Excellent. You've watched it seven times now. So. I have watched Spider-Verse seven times now. Oh, my good gracious. I love it. That's yeah, a good movie. I love it. They're going to make more, hopefully. Um, well, they said they were going to do a sequel and a spinoff, mm-hmm. like a, a sequel directly from that one, still focusing on Miles. Okay. And a spinoff focusing on Spider-Women. So Gwen, uh, Spider-Woman, the other one, and Silk, who is a relatively new character that I don't know a lot about. Okay. But they have since said, by they I mean Lord and Miller, uh, that they're going to do like a TV universe where they theoretically are going to have like multiple shows that can interact with one another. All focused on spider people, so I really hope we're getting a Spider-Man Noir Nicolas Cage TV show. Holy crap. That would be magical. I would watch it so much. The full cage. Yeah, the full cage. Ah, We've gone so far off topic. We have. I don't even care. On the topic of really weird music, 
you just put out a new new guitar uh, video oh, or yeah. a new cover video yeah. in general. Yeah, I just today I released a video on my YouTube channel of me covering a Cardiac song, which is a band that I've been absolutely obsessed with for the last year or so. And you were introduced to Cardiacs by Adam from Kairos? That's correct. So does anyone in America, in your experience, know Cardiacs? Not until I show them. <laughs> Proselytizing, one person yes, at a time. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think if I like met anyone who already knew who they were here. Don't think so. Nope. Yeah, it's pretty much... They were, they're a London band from primarily the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. who never made it that big, but have a really devoted cult following because their music is just wild and kind of an enigma. And it makes me so happy. And it, it's again in the realm of really technically interesting and production wise interesting, mm-hmm. especially for the time, but very enigmatic. There's not very much about it that is normal. <laughs> No, that, that's, that's accurate. If, so, if you're wondering what we're talking about, search for them on YouTube and then watch Joey's video. Yes. Just type in Joey from all the cardiacs on YouTube. But um, What if there's a cardiac surgeon with your name and he puts up YouTube videos? <laughs> <laughs> there's that second part. If the, That's been added since we recorded this, maybe, but it was not there this morning. Mm. There, I guess the best way to describe them is imagine that a guy who was raised on a diet of avant-garde music and Monty Python joined a punk band yep that's that's really what it is and their videos speak to that my goodness they're strange oh yes they unsettle me but i think that's the point <laughs> they just make me laugh <laughs> yeah that's fair uh, yeah and it, it actually the one video that i can think of he the singer is wearing really odd makeup yeah. like he's kind of drilling green stuff or mm-hmm. something it reminds me of how i feel watching the 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 restaurant sketch from meaning of life oh mr creosa yes <laughs> that, it makes me feel like that feels Interesting, because that I hate Mr. Creosote. I know. It's my least favorite Monty Python anything. Really? It's well, up there. You haven't seen the last season, though. Have I not? I don't know. I mean, I, have, like, have I, you... I watched the whole box set. Oh, then you have. Yeah. I think I would prefer to watch, even though I don't like that scene very much, I would prefer to watch that over the final season of Python. Okay. It's been a while. It's been like since, since like mid-high school. Yeah. Do you have a favorite sketch? I was thinking. I don't know that I could name one. <sighs> I typically say The Argument Clinic. That's when true. When people ask this. Which I didn't know how popular of one that was until I got more into Python. Because mm-hmm. I, up until probably college, was more on the outside of, like, not really getting the absurd humor. And, like, I'll take a dead parrot or a Ministry of Silly Walks, which yeah. is kind of the... I promise this isn't derogatory. That's kind of the layman's Python. In like, a way, those are, yeah. like, the most surface-level ones. Yeah, if you're not into that style of humor, you probably still think that's funny. Yeah, you've, or you've at least seen those, probably. Yeah. Or something from Holy Grail, you probably seen. That's true. Because Holy Grail is the Holy Grail. I associate Holy Grail with lime-flavored tortilla chips. I think you've explained this to me, but I forget. Because I watched it over at a friend's house for a New Year's Eve party, and I was very hungry, and they gave me a bag of tortilla chips, which I'm fine with, because, you know, I like bland food. Tortilla chips are good. But they were, like, with a, quote, hint of lime. They were very lime. Very lime. Very did lime. Not, did not enjoy. Okay. So I associate anyway. those two now. Did you eat them anyway? Uh, as much as I could stomach, because I was hungry. Gotcha. Yeah, my my parents gave my brother the the sex talk. Oh, during... Hold, so, oh, oh, right, so, for the nun So that we could watch that movie. Yay. <laughs> so they could show us that movie. But I feel like if he hadn't had the talk, then the scene would have just gone over his head and you move on. That's, that's the way they decided to do it. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. And it's still one of the funniest things that's ever happened in my family. There you go. Every time I watch Python through again, like every couple of years, I just appreciate a different member more. Mm-hmm. 
because they all bring something so different to the table. It's true. Who's your favorite now? I think the last watch through, I really appreciated Jones. Okay, Terry Jones. Yeah, because he's so good at playing housewives. He is absolutely the best at playing housewives. <laughs> Him, Eric Idle's a close second. Yes. But, but... Well, er- Eric Idle, I'm thinking particularly of uh, the Dirty Fork sketch. Mm-hmm. But he he's really good at sort of snooty. Yeah. And that comes across really well in a certain caricature of like mid 20th century housewife. Yes. <laughs> But no, yeah, Terry Jones is by far the best the best woman. Mm-hmm. And he's very good at stripping for some reason. He is. <laughs> he does it like three times. Yep, I can think of, um, there's one that's coming to mind right now. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, he's trying to change his bathing suit. Yes, he does. And then everything goes wrong. This has devolved, uh, listeners, into just whatever happens when any time uh, Joey and I sit down. That's we true. Just, we talk about all the things. <laughs> I'm going to look at my notes and see if there's anything we should actually talk about, <laughs> if any of you are still there. We can always edit this as well. Eh, it's probably more interesting this way. Yeah. I don't know. I, that's the thing. I Going into this, I wanted to make it more conversational, cause, so it wouldn't feel dry. Because mm-hmm. that's the, the kind of uh, sort of interviewish things that I always enjoyed, are when, if a thread appears and the people talking are interested in that thread, why not? Because yeah. people talking about things they're interested in is good. I agree. It's entertaining. Mm-hmm. But not everyone would be interested in what they're interested in talking about. So, yeah. Eh. Either way, I yeah, suppose. Well, we're already into it. Well, there's a note that I have here on my notes of things to talk about that says chocolate milk. Okay. <laughs> yes. Shoot. Because uh, you recently did an interview with uh, MyProg? Prog Magazine? Yeah, MyProg is the name of that segment. Ah, I see. And they asked about your favorite venue? Yes. Yes. And you told them an answer, and I know that there is a different answer to why that is your favorite venue. Is that the same one? It is the same one. There you go. And I said that, and they didn't include it. <laughs> <laughs> so for clarification, the, 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 the Prague Magazine is based here? England? No, it's uh, England, yeah. Okay. And, and they asked Joey what his favorite venue was, and it was in... Holland. That's right. Yeah, it's a venue called The Border Eye. Yeah. In Holland. It's the best. As From a from an audience member perspective, I can't speak to it because I've only ever been there to play because I don't live there. Right. But as an artist playing there, it is absolutely the best. They treat you like gods. <laughs> And they stock your 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 fridge with the greatest chocolate milk. Do you remember what it's called? Choco Mel. Choco Mel. Choco Mel. Mel. M e l. Is is there a hyphen or is that a no, word? No, it's just one word. Have you looked into importing it? No, I have not because I go there enough to get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's a place that Cairo seems to play regularly for whatever reason. Yeah, Holland loves us. Sure, Holland is a big prog place. It's weird what countries latch on to what because the, there's obviously the joke of getting big in Japan. Yeah. Who's the song big in Japan? Is that Cheap Trick? Maybe. Maybe. That makes sense. I know Cheap Trick is big in Japan. Yeah, yeah. I have a Budokan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, what all, what all countries have you played for Kairos in? Um, Holland. Oh, uh, yeah. Holland, England, US. Yep. Um, Germany. Germany. Belgium. We haven't played France. We played... You haven't done Spain. No. There's two more, at least, that were on this Fox Beard Tour. Oh, yeah. What year was that? That was 2015. Uh, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. Mm. So it, is it a sort of farther east but not eastern Europe thing to be into that kind of music, to your knowledge? Is it big there, or is it just Cairo's slash Boxbeard? <laughs> it's, it has a fan. Germany and Holland, I think, are the biggest Prague-supporting countries to my, that I'm aware of, mm. and the UK to a certain extent. Right. But now it's still pretty niche even in those places. It's just, you know, you find the market for it in right. those places. I never really thought about that before, but I guess pretty much all of the like Gen One 
prog bands, I mean, as people in England would say, they're trying to have that sound, are mainly English. Pretty right? much. Other than Rush. Other than Rush and maybe Kansas, if you want to count them. I guess. I've they're never listened to enough to know. And they're from that time. Yeah. Yes, or English, right? Yeah. King Crimson? I, I don't know. I think so. That's it's a band that people adjacent to me listen to. See, I like I like prog stuff, but once once you go back to the original generation of prog, I care less. That's fair. I'm much more into the newer stuff. I mean, and it has changed drastically, and I, I assume that's part of why that naming question is a debate. Yeah, between prog and progressive, because prog yeah. has progressed. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot. I mean, there's still plenty of bands trying to sound like Yes and Genesis and whatever. And some of them I like more than those bands. Yeah, but um, like probably my favorite example of those would either be certain certain aspects of what Neil Morse does. I would say are pretty throwback, but I still like what he does more than either of them. Mm. And Moon Safari would be another good one. Oh yeah, I love Moon Safari. They're like imagine those bands, but they have the harmonies of Beach Boys. Oh my, it's the best. <laughs> I need to listen to that. And also, they're they're just so happy all the time. <laughs> okay, that's fun. I do enjoy the Yes album a lot. Mm. Yeah, I've, that's one of the few I've listened to. I love Roundabout, but Fragile doesn't do it for me. I mean, I listen to that whole album. Uh, it's fine. Mm. I mean, I'm, some people love it. That's fine. Yeah. But Yes album, so good. Yeah, Yes album's good. Close to the Edge is really good. I don't know if it'd be your thing, though. It's like three tracks. <laughs> what is that? Close to the Edge. Who's that? Yes. Oh, it's Yes again. Yeah, yeah. It's, their, it's the number one ranked album on Prog Archives. Interesting. Like, of all time. Huh. Okay, I should probably try that. I mean, I uh, I don't often do, like, super long form, there are only four tracks on this album, mm-hmm. but I did enjoy Thick as a Brick. Okay, yeah. I love Thick as I love Jethro Tull. Would, would you say they're prog? Yeah. Okay. Thick I'm... as a Brick is the second highest rated. <laughs> no, no, is it second? I think it is, yeah. The, the fewer songs, the better, to yeah. be ranked. <laughs> yeah, Jethro Tull has two albums like that. There's that one and Passion Play, which mm. is way weirder. <laughs> I only know Jethro Tull partly because of my best friend in high school, who you've met. Yes. You've met Charles. Charles. Hey, Charles, are you listening? probably not that's fine uh <laughs> only because of him and aqualong being on rock band 2 yes yep that's where i first heard them and i was like this is the weirdest thing i've yet heard <laughs> which is the only reason i understood that joke in anchorman what oh yeah with <laughs> the, the, the flute joke. yeah that was weird that is a, that is a movie yeah i thought that's the only scene i've seen oh you never watched it no i'm not a huge will ferrell guy yeah we're this is becoming the I'm not big into that podcast. Yeah. Started with Tim Burton. Now we're we, we can talk about other things we like. Yeah, we, we, we actually like. I'm surprised we haven't brought up Studio Ghibli yet. Oh, okay. This, let's do it. That's it's amazing putting us in a room and it hasn't come up yet. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about film scoring and it didn't come up. That's true. Joe Saishi, you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> come on, Joe. I love you so <laughs> do you, much. Do you speak English? I don't know. Yeah. So Danny Elfman is like my second favorite film composer. Joe Saishi is my favorite film oh, composer. Oh, you put him first. Yes. Interesting. I love Joe Saishi more than I love life itself. <laughs> Batman is so good. He's very different because Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman is much more. He will work for your movie to get it to sound the way you want, and he like he has his own like fingerprint that will definitely be on it. True, but he also he has so much stuff where you're like you would never just immediately think, oh, it's obviously Danny Elfman. Right. Joe Sashi's not bad. He's like, if you want your movie to sound a certain way, get me. If mm-hmm. you don't, eh, I'm not interested. If you want to sound like a Hayao Miyazaki film, yeah. Like, he's, he's going to write the way he writes, and if you like it, good. If you don't, mm-hmm. and it's a completely different approach, but he just consistently, like, every score he makes is so good. Yep. And it, it's fascinating because his fingerprint is so definitive. Mm-hmm. Like, there are these chord progressions that are very similar across the board. His instrumentation is very similar across the board, but it's all still distinct. Yeah. Like, I, I've only started muddling them since I've started listening to the concerts. Yeah, yeah. When they're all played in quick succession. Yeah. 
and and especially if you only listen to those, it's even harder to tell a difference. But if you listen to like the the official soundtrack, there are different aspects to the way they're arranged and stuff. Like mm. especially like you know you could listen to Nausicaa being probably the biggest, but even like Totoro. Totoro is a lot synthier than most of his other stuff. That's true. I think my favorite thing in the entire Totoro score is the the undercurrent bass when Cat Bus is coming from afar. It's it just gets you going. <laughs> yep. It, it gets me hyped for this children's movie. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget the first time, because I watched that movie for the first time with Matt and yeah. Catherine. My wife, wife, Catherine. Yeah. Who had both seen it before, and I'd never seen it. And I just remember being sat right behind them, looking at the TV, when the cat bus was like about to come up, you guys both just like turned around and watched my face. That's true. And I kind of didn't think much of it, and then I just saw it happen, and I just, my mouth just went... Dun, 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 dun. Uh... <laughs> And I've never been that happy since. It's so great. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. Its skin opens to a door. Uh, and yeah, it sounds it, it awful. Meow. It does go round. And it has rats for headlights yeah. for turning so many people off to watching it now. Oh my god, it's so good. I shouldn't have said skin. No, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's accurate. Unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, so, uh, in terms of like a Danny Elfman or a Joe Sashi, are obviously you have a style that you have developed in you know writing for your bands. It is there anything you've learned from absorbing their scores in terms of translating your style into film scoring? Uh, I guess I've I've noticed they're both very, very big melody writers. True. Which is not always what everyone wants in a film score. Mm-hmm. So, which is tend to be kind of how I, I tend to think more in like mel- using melodies to... Rather than incidental. Rather than, rather than, you know, uh, mood, I guess would be sure. another way to... Like something that's just more spacious and... Mm-hmm that's the mood or the tone or whatever yeah because i mean there's, there's definitely a couple schools of thought in film scoring where you have like a michael giacchino particularly pixar michael giacchino where there's in a, that camp as well yeah. yeah where there are a few themes or like specific melodies mm-hmm. that can be used throughout the film to various effects uh thematically and otherwise yeah versus uh the people that i like to think of as like the the ringo stars of the film scoring world <laughs> who do a perfectly competent job but you don't notice them, and that's kind of the, their intention. Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of directors want that effect, mm-hmm. which is it's fine. And it's, yeah. you know, Hans Zimmer has a lot of scores that are like that, mm-hmm. especially in like recent times. Well, like if you listen to the score of like Dunkirk, yeah, which is a really cool score, especially if you're paying attention to it. Which you kind of almost miss it if you're not. Yeah, because it's very subtle. It's very um, sound effect heavy. Like there's a, there's a whole cue where it's pretty much just like a clock ticking. Mm. And a couple other little sound effects happening. But the way it's used is just very masterful. And it gets the tension of the scene perfectly. It's hard to explain without, without seeing it. What was the first time those two uh, hooked up? Was it Batman? I think it was Batman. Was it Batman? I don't think it was. I think it might have been Dark, Dark Knight. Knight. Cool. Because they were not. He wasn't on Prestige. No, I guess not. It was right between them. It always trips me out that Hans Zimmer did the score. Not, not the songs and lyrics, obviously. But the score for Lion King. Yeah, yeah that's true. Because the the big triumphant bit of score when Simba's ascending Pride Rock right at the end, I always thought it was very nice. Yes. That, it's a nice bit of score. Yeah, Hans Zimmer is good. He's definitely, he's very hit or miss as far as like, I guess the big the biggest thing that I learned from like listening to, paying attention to the way like Danny Elfman approaches it or like Joe Sicey approaches it or even like certain Michael Giacchino's mm. is I really like it when the film score still functions as music. Sure. Like if you remove the vision, if you turn the TV off but kept the speakers on or whatever, would it still be pleasing? Right. And could you just listen to it? Mm-hmm. 
And if the answer is no, then I tend to not like it as much, even though if I can still appreciate when it's a good job Mm -hmm. for the purposes of what it is. Yeah. And and that certainly would inform what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. That's probably the biggest takeaway I've had from those two people. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I listen to those guys' music just as much as I listen to anyone else's. Yeah. So do you think the instances where you have like written a, a temp score for someone's film, like to be like, hey, I want to write for this film, and they eventually said, no, we uh, we want to use someone else. Do you think your tendency to do that do, uh, doesn't work for some directors and might work for others kind of thing, where that, that is your style? It's not really, well, it's not really come, come up that much, but there, the most recent thing I did was like a, a trailer for a horror movie where the guy... And a big part of the the job as well is just being able to kind of interpret the intention and will of someone who's not really versed in music and can't really explain what they want in musical terms. Right. They'll try their best, but, you know, you got to kind of realize that they're not going to say no 5-1 cadences. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They're going to say, I don't want it to sound so, I don't want it to sound like, like, like triumphant. Right. And you have to realize in your head. Okay, no, 5-1 cadences are, like, the definition of triumphant, so you gotta say, no, that. It's the equivalent of, like, going to uh, the mechanic with your car and going, it's making this noise. Exactly. So, that's part of the job as well. And, like, you know, he, he basically was like, I don't want this to sound too themey. Mm. But, like, I also want there to be this melody for this particular thing that's happening. Okay. That's, that seems like a decent request and way to phrase it. Yeah, and I, I was like, okay, I think I'm tracking with you. And the first couple drafts I wrote were still, quote-unquote, too themey. And he wound up, when I had the melody in the space that he wanted, he wound up not liking it and wanted something a lot more spacious and atmospheric. Ah. So it's just a case of, like, you have to be willing to kind of roll with the punches and sure. change things. And that's film. Yeah. Because film, I I don't think it would be wrong to say that it's the most collaborative art form. Yeah, it has to be. It's too intensive mm-hmm. in so many different things. Unless you're like, here's the guy that did such a beautiful day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, unless you're one of those absolutely insane people who can do all the bits Mm -hmm. then yeah i saw actually i think where did i see this it might have been g kids someone posted about um this like cg animated feature that was made by one guy that's oh yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. the art style was really cool but Mm -hmm. the the animation was pretty that's what's gonna happen that's what you can learn from like solo video game development of like Mm -hmm. working with your limitations to make an art style Mm -hmm. makoto shinkai is actually probably the best example of this that's true like his first movie was just made by himself and it's a similar thing. Amazing art direction. Terrible animation. He's just not a great drawer. <laughs> yep. But he's, man, is he a good art, like, he's not a good draftsman, I should say. Yeah. Drawer. But his his backgrounds are unparalleled. Drawer. I barely know her. Yeah, yeah, Makoto Shinkai, is that you? <laughs> Aren't you listening? <laughs> <laughs> right, to that point, that's something I was thinking about. Um through this whole process of me starting Music City Maker stuff and, you know, setting up to do this podcast, one of my biggest creative hurdles personally has been the idea of putting something in the world and then getting negative response, mm. where I, I think the the hurdle for me personally to get over was, A, maybe not a whole lot of people are going to look at it in the first place to give it negative response. <laughs> so if you get response, kind of good for you. Alternatively, just do it for you. But uh, from my experience of knowing you and seeing the things you've done, it doesn't seem like that's ever been a hurdle for you, or at least a minimal one. I kind of love getting negative responses. Right. I, I'm a sadist when it comes to that. But, I love the, the when people tell me they don't get something I made or whatever. I get a little bit a little bit happy. It's hard to explain, <laughs> <laughs> but for whatever reason, it's never bothered me. Like I got a really scathing review of Gone. I remember, like a month ago, at, or at least it, I was 
I found it a month ago. And I was just like, eh. <laughs> he thinks empty sounds like Dancing Queen by ABBA. <laughs> he did say that. What an idiot. <laughs> that guy, are you listening? Yeah, I hope you're listening. <laughs> hey, check out Instatic. Maybe you'll like it more. I, that's possible. No, and, and I think that that speaks to your mentality to some degree insofar that you're doing these things because you enjoy them. Mm. So if someone else listens to it and doesn't get it, it's like, okay, you listen to it. Thanks. Yeah. You have an opinion, maybe sometimes one that isn't very well thought out, constructive criticism wise, but you tried it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. At the end of the day, it's like, I don't think my music is <clears throat> is that easy to get a lot of the time. That is true. So and yeah. it's not even by design nope. necessarily. It's just like. I just I just got used to it because the amount, actually one of my favorite instances of this is there's a song on Kairos's album Voximana called The Lamb, the Badger, and the Bee, mm-hmm. which I think over time has kind of become a big like fan favorite amongst Kairos fans. Like that song seems to be a consistent one. People are like, yeah, I love that song. Right. But um, around the time the album was about to come out, pretty much every time we played it live, like you could look out in the audience and people would be like, what? <laughs> like, what is this tr- song? And when my mom attended one of the concerts, she she was like, man, that was really good. There's just one song I just didn't really like, though. It was like The Lamb or something. And I was like, The Lamb Badger and the Bee's like, yeah, I just didn't like that song. I was like, oh, well, that's one of mine. And she just felt really bad. Do you think that had to do with translation of it from album to live? Or or just it was a slow burn in general? I think it was. I feel like the stuff I do tends to be very slow burns for people. Okay. Even for, like, my own parents, who are very biased to like things yeah. that I make. They're heavily supportive. They will they will still not get things for about a few months before, until mm-hmm. after I finish them, <laughs> a lot of the time. So I've just, I've just gotten used to it. On, I know Voximana, and we've talked about this personally before, where uh, that the story was more or less your concept. Mm-hmm. What was the actual, because I know the, the current Kairos album is every individual member writing their own songs, right? Well, me and Adam. You and, and Adam. Me, Adam, and Sam, who was, used to be our guitarist, have yes. one track. Was Kairos written like one song you, one song Adam kind of thing? or No, it's it's. I have two songs on the album. Sam has one. Adam has the rest. I see. So. What were Sam's two? Oh, on Boxumana? Yes. Okay, Boxumana was. Oh, uh, my Boxumana was. Um, I had three full tracks and like half of another one. Okay. And then Sam had three tracks. Hmm. Adam had the rest, which is a 14 track album, I think. So That sounds right. So. Half and half. Like Adam was about Adam half and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Adam is just a really, really fast songwriter. Like sure. he, he's the kind of person who throws everything at the wall and then whittles down. Okay. That's that's his approach. That makes sense. I, if you wanted to be really anal about it, I probably have more of my stuff on there just because a lot of my job in Kairos is to kind of see what Adam's right and be like, okay, these, these bits are good. Tr- condense this. <laughs> change these chords. <laughs> yeah. Pick these notes instead. But it's still Adam's song, but it's like I'm like the almost, I almost play producer with him a lot of the sure. time. Sure. But as far as, like, like you, you are the wall. See what sticks on Joey. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, three of the... Tr- on the new album, I have only two songs that are, like, mine from start... That I, like, brought, which are fun. Mm-hmm. One of them is very, very... It has a lot of bells. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, I heard that. That's yeah. right. Uh, you played that for me the other day. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. I got to hear it before you. Ha, ha, ha. I win. Benefits of being college friends. Yeah. And the other one is very heavy. Mm-hmm. Not that heavy. But it's heavy for this album. Yeah. Uh, so the first time I listened through Voxumana, uh, it was when I was not working at home. I had a real job. So I, <laughs> the only time I was listening to new music was in my car on the way to and from work. So I, I, I put in Voxumana one day. Uh, and I think the moment for me, I mean, the whole thing is really good. Again, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've probably heard it. If you haven't, go listen to it. It's a uh, long boy. It is a long boy. 
it got me through several uh, car trips to my, you know, 10 minute commute. <laughs> but, uh, I think the moment for me where it became really multi-layered and like, okay, yeah, th- this feels like a double album was The Hounds. Yeah, that's one of Sam's. That's one of Sam's. Yeah. Sam, that's some good stuff. Yeah. That was real good. <laughs> that song went through a lot of rewrites. The very original version of like that intro part was wound up being on like the classical guitar, the that kind of arpeggio thing. Yeah. It was originally on a harpsichord. Oh my. And it was like a tango riff. It was like... Tango and Hounds. So that song changed a lot. But yeah, I really like how that song came out as well. Mm. The Obviously, the definition of double album has changed over the years because mm-hmm. it's just what it takes to put on two of whatever medium it is. Yeah. Which was a lot less when, you know, Chicago's second album is a double album now that can easily fit on one CD. Yeah. As, re- as remixed by Stephen Wilson. Yes. That's a thing. <laughs> Where, Steve, uh, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What band is he from again? I don't know. Uh, Porcupine Tree, there you most go. notably. Oh, is he multi? Yeah, I mean, he's pretty much just a solo artist now. Ah, I see. But, um, yeah, that, that's the thing I've often experienced with double albums is that a lot of times it feels like they weren't necessarily designed as double. It's just we have all these songs and put them on there. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of, like, side three, if we're using vinyl terminology, I start bogging down a little bit. Yeah. Not sure where I'm going with this. Uh, what, what, I guess, what for you in your experience of longer form albums, do you have examples that you go to of like this worked really well or common threads between them? Yeah, well, the way Voxumana is structured is very similar to a Dream Theater album called Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence. Okay. Which is that the first half, the first disc is some standalone songs, and then the second disc is essentially a giant suite sure. that was all composed to be one piece. Huh. So it's pretty much ripping that format off completely. Okay. It wasn't intended to be a double album, but the whole thing was just too long. Mm-hmm. So it was like, fine. I mean, we have a very natural split point. So, mm-hmm. so that's a, that's one of my favorite double albums. Is um, there's a uh, there's quite a lot of concept albums that are double albums, just because stories. Sure. You know, you got to take put as much music as will finish the story. Yeah, you, but, your quadrophenias and stuff. Yeah, you know, to, to varying degrees of success. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think a lot of people double albums are weird because a lot of people a lot of people have a very economical mindset when it to the way they listen to music like they think if uh, if i'm not completely getting every second of it on a listen it must be because it's filler yeah and it's that's a weird concept uh in terms of music history as well because up until beatles you didn't think of an album as a whole like up until sergeant pepper is what i've been told by Mm -hmm. music historian people uh is when you start to look at it as this is a cohesive whole as opposed to a place where all of the singles live. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, obviously that's not the intent with every album that's ever made, but people, I think people have kind of trained their brain to think that way, even when that's not the way it's being presented. Mm. And I assume that went away again, come the nineties when, uh, you know, it became much more corporate pop driven on one side of uh, the influence, but also on the other side, when we got into CDs, CDs could hold so much compared to a cassette. Yeah. Yeah. So that they just threw more songs on there to, again, like like the uh, Japan only tracks, uh, just for value, I guess. Yeah, just like uh, one of my favorite albums, Bare Naked Ladies, Gordon mm-hmm. has too many songs <laughs> because I mean, it was, I think, their second album. And it's essentially just one of their live sets mm. put onto a CD. And typically a live set for you know a headline band might run longer than a normal album. Yeah. You know, hour and a half, two hours. Mm-hmm. But it was the early 90s, and we had all this space, so you might as well fill it. Yeah. So as a result, there's a few thong- songs that I would personally take out. Yeah, makes that's sense. Me. That's me. But it's part of the album, and they put it there. Yeah. So California. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing. I am moving there. Yeah. I, I've kind of, I guess I've more or less been here for a lot of that decision. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what to say about it at this point <laughs> in terms of asking a question of that. That's the weird thing about the first episode of this thing being with you mm-hmm. is that there, there's this barrier of knowledge that exists for most people listening in theory that does not exist between us. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, I'm about to answer a question I know you know the answer to. <laughs> yep. I guess, I mean, obviously, uh, the reason that you want to go there is because you're, you're thinking your trajectory is more film score yeah. than uh, doing the band thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's an infrastructure thing, but I don't know what that is. I don't know that most people do. What, what infrastructure exists that makes film scoring so much more possible to pursue there than here? That's just where it's all happening. Right. I mean, it's honestly, it's just that simple. Like the, the, um, obviously I haven't moved yet, so I can't say this from firsthand experience, but I've been communicating with a lot of friends who are in that world. Belmont people. Belmont people. Shout out to Tyler, if you're listening. And they just made it really clear to me that LA is, is such a place where it's like, if you're there and you are in front of people's faces and you do the thing they need you to do, mm-hmm. you're so much more likely to be asked to do the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I guess even now when you can uh, record and send things remotely, that's still the power of networking. Yeah. As awful as networking <laughs> is. And especially because everyone is there trying to do things. Mm-hmm. So it's like... Go watch La La Land. If, they, you know, if, you, if you send an email to some place and you're like, hi, I do this thing. Do you need this thing to get done? Why would they pick you over like the 30 guys who they saw just this week who yeah. want to do that same thing? The, the ones who served them their coffee. Yeah. Just being there is like half the battle. Mm-hmm. And then... There's so much work there. There's so many things on every level just being done over there yeah. that you can eke out a living. So. Yeah, and, and the democratization of filmmaking mm-hmm. over the last couple decades is certainly, I would imagine, contributed to that because you know more people are able to make and distribute, more importantly, than any other yeah. time. So, therefore, you need all of the other people involved in the large collaboration of filmmaking. Exactly. It's not just, you know, you know. It's not like you're working for Marvel or you're working for nobody. Yep. It's like there's so many levels to this. And if you work for Marvel, you're probably f- filming and uh, sound recording in Georgia. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, Atlanta's apparently on the come up. Yeah, because uh, around the time, I think the time that I first started really hearing about it, because I'm from Georgia, for those who don't know, was Walking Dead. Oh, okay. Because that's set in Georgia, so it made sense for them to film it there. Mm-hmm. And that was when they started really doling out the tax rebates. Mm-hmm. And so the big studios got wind of that. And they started filming, you know, uh, the old joke used to be that if you couldn't get New York, you'd film in Toronto. Yeah. Where recently, if you can't get New York, you film in Atlanta. Got it. So, there, you know, there have been some avenger things filmed there. And I think maybe some of Spectre, the last Bond. Really? Because they built a, a satellite of uh, Pinewood Studios in Atlanta. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty legit. That's and cool. I've got some friends both from college who were georgia people at belmont and from high school who are working for film industry in georgia now so yeah it's a little bit everywhere but la is such a specific combination of the hollywood side and like the music label side that it just makes sense that exists yeah it just seems to be the place Mm -hmm. place to be for me right now hopefully i don't die that would be good yeah yeah i've only been to disneyland that's all i've done out there all right yep that was before i knew what the san andreas fault was (laughs) That's true. I've never been in an earthquake before. Yeah, that doesn't seem fun. No. That seems like like maybe one of the most existentially strange disasters. Yeah. Because it's literally everything around you, <laughs> as opposed to there's, there's a tornado over there. <laughs> there's a thing coming at me to kill me. I've explained this to a few people, and no one, and everyone is just befuddled. As a small child, I didn't understand that tornadoes were wind. 
Ah, okay. Like I, I, I knew that there was a thing. Like I, I'd never seen images as a small child of a tornado. I just like saw what it left, mm-hmm. and I knew that it made big noises, and that we had to hide in the bathroom. So I, my conception at a certain point in my childhood was that it was a giant boulder just huh. rolling around, <laughs> destroying things. Amazing. Which would be so much worse. Way worse. Infinitely worse, probably. I've never been in a tornado either, but no. I was very terrified of tornadoes when I was in elementary school. Did you have to do tornado drills? No, we did hurricane drills. Well, that makes sense. You're in Florida. Yeah. Did Did you do, were they, well, uh, tor- tornado drills, you get like against the wall, put your head all the way down in the corner. Yeah, no, we never did that. What did you do for a hurricane? I don't remember. <laughs> but um, it didn't do its job then. No. I don't think it was Twister that they showed in my third grade what? class. But it was a movie kind of like that. It was a movie that had, you saw the tornado fall from the sky. Was it Wizard of Oz? No. Like, you you know how tornadoes just, like, fully formed, fall to the floor, pretty yeah. much? That unsettled me so deeply, I, <laughs> that image. That's a pretty terrifying image. It, as it is as though the breath of God is <laughs> descending from the clouds. Yeah. So I, I had a deep... Irrational fear of tornadoes for a couple years. I don't know that... I, I understand that irrational just means there's no direct contact, but that seems like a relatively rational one. Yeah, but, you know, I was in Florida. Tornadoes don't happen in Florida, really. That's true. It's all water-based. And that's why my mom was like, Tor- you're not... Tor- no. And then you moved to Tennessee. And I moved to Tennessee, and I've almost been in a tornado several times. Yeah. <laughs> Still hasn't happened. Have, have they come near your part of town? No, but I've, there's been tornado warnings. Oh, sure, because our siren system is awful. Yeah. Are you listening, Nash Severe Twitter? <laughs> I follow you. You do very good work. We got onto meteorology somehow. You did. You're yep. going good. Yeah. Again, this is exactly what it's like to just hang out with me and Joey. Yep. This is the way it always goes. So if that's the kind of podcast you're into where it's like you're chilling with your buds, welcome. Hi, buds. Bud. You're my favorite bud. bud. You. I, that was my nickname for most of my childhood. Bud. Bud. Nice. That explains why you call people bud. I didn't start doing that until like high school so okay. i think i had internalized it and nice. i just came back around all right <laughs> you get you got to give the bud back bud when when the bartender says nope you're done you give the bud back yep yep not it, not brought to you by any alcohol company isn't, isn't bud light like a bad beer <laughs> so do we just insult whoever is like a drunk in this imaginary bar mm. someone answer my question please welcome to the we don't both don't drink podcast yeah. <laughs> but yeah in terms of the fact that, you know, uh, obviously you're going to continue doing your own music mm-hmm. in the move. You have you have an album in the works that I have heard some of, and yes. it is very interesting and good. Thank you. Uh, you've always, at least as long as I've known you, been very interested in lots of different things. Has that always been the case? Like lots of different disciplines? Uh, I would say it's grown over time. Because mm. I, I was very, very one-track mind music for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I didn't really do anything else. Sure. But it seems like every time you find a thing, it's not that you're one track on that thing. It's that you want to devote time equally as necessary among those things that you're interested in. Yeah, I, I would like to. It's not always possible. Right. But that's one of the things I've always admired about you is work ethic. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't necessarily even seem to be work ethic so much as I want to do the things. Yeah. But it manifests that way. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess I'm a workaholic, but it doesn't feel like it. It's just like... That's what I want to do in my time. Right. So. But whether it's yeah, uh, consuming or making, it, mm-hmm. you're sort of all in. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That, that is that is how my brain is wired. <laughs> <laughs> and as such, I will hopefully finish another solo album before the year is done. Cool. That's my plan. Mm-hmm. 
How many tracks are planned? Do you know? Let me check my phone. Check in the phone. Let's see. Do you have a name yet? No. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, threw a, I had a name kind of in my head for a little bit, but nothing I've landed on completely. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, and then one here. So I've got 11 theorized. Mm-hmm. We'll see how many of them actually get done. Oh, no, it's right there. Okay. Uh, 10 realized. Okay. I don't know why it's not the end. It's supposed to be the last one. Mm. Uh, I don't know how to explain this album at all. It makes no sense. And that's kind of the whole point of it. Yeah, <laughs> it will continue to not make sense until about three months later, as with The Lamb of Badger and the Bee. Yes, except it doesn't even make sense to me. So this is the new one. <laughs> there we go. Now, what was the, the uh, agreed upon winner between The Lamb of the Badger and the Bee on the Facebook group? Um, the Bee. The Bee one? Because yeah. it stings everything bee, in the face. These are pointy. Yeah. That's fair. That's, <laughs> I don't it, know it, why. It was never going to be The Lamb. No. No. No, a lot of people said the badger and they're wrong. Well, only the honey badger, though. Like, the the one that'll, like, uh, beat you up and such. No, but bees are pointy. Yeah. I'm glad we saved the bees. I'm glad that worked out. Yeah. Bee movie. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld saved the bees. Yes. Buzz, buzz, Let, buzz, buzz, buzz. Let it be known. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay, this, here's an interesting, to me, question. I feel like, for our age group, there was... Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, and Disney. And you probably spent more time on one than the others, even if you watched all three. Mm-hmm. Did you have it an, an allegiance? I would say it went like this. From birth to 2003 to 5-ish, it was all Cartoon Network. So, like, 0 to 11. Yeah. Is with And toward the end of there, Nickelodeon started to be sprinkled in. Mm. Then, pretty much up to the start of high school, it was mostly Nickelodeon. Because that was, that was like, when Cartoon Network was in, it's like, eh, period. Yeah. Like, when they're trying to do live action for no reason. We don't talk about that. Yeah, we don't talk about dark times. Cartoon Network's really good now. Yeah, and then, as my sister started to grow up, Disney Channel became more of a thing. And I never really liked Disney Channel, but I watched it sometimes. I watched a lot of Toon Disney. Toon yeah. Disney was the good stuff. Never watched it. Toon Disney had the the reruns of the the shows that were before our time. So your your Ducktales and your Tailspins and your Wing Ducks and your Gargoyles, mm-hmm. which are all excellent. No, Toon, no Disney Channel was uh, pretty much Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, which was very average. Yeah, yeah, that, that's actually the best thing you can say about it. Yeah, that's accurate. And then it was Phineas and Ferb, which is the greatest thing ever made by humans. Yep. But there, in the roundabout Zack and Cody era, there were lots of, I think, really good stuff. Even if it didn't hold up, it was really good for that age group. Like, That's So Raven was really funny. Was it? Yeah. I never watched it. Proud Family. Good show. I've heard that was good, yeah. It was really, really good. Representation on Disney Channel. Where's that gone? <laughs> to Cartoon Network. That's where it's yeah. gone. Yeah, and like the, new, the, the current gen of Cartoon Network is, I only got into like very recently. Because mm. uh, Jesse got me into Adventure Time. Yep. Which is... That's not even current gen anymore. No, it's, I mean, it just finished. But, yes. but it lasted so long. Yeah, it feels it was, like it transcended it like, gens. It was like 10 seasons. But yeah, I mean, that was like what ushered in the current gen. Of, Very much so. And it was just, oh, man. If I you guys haven't watched Adventure Time, absolutely rec- need to watch Adventure Time. I feel like Adventure Time ushered in the current age of like all television animation to some degree. I think you might like, be right. E- even if it doesn't have direct influence, just being able to see, oh, we can do something that weird. And, and the liberation of that, mm-hmm. and, and also the the deeper ideas that, you know, a lot of shows have had those deeper ideas, but they were shows that were often catering simultaneously toward an older kid and young adult market, like my beloved DC cartoons from the 90s, sure. that were mainly, after they came on, courting 20 and 30 year olds who had grown up loving comics, mm-hmm. 
in addition to the kids who like action figures. Yeah. Where your Adventure Times and your Steven Universes have, uh, you know, these deep stories that are pointed toward kids. And they're darn good shows. Yeah. I haven't watched Steven Universe. But, yeah, everyone seems to love it. And there are lots of other shows that I feel are spawned from Adventure Time's impetus. Yeah, well, Steven Universe was literally created by an Adventure Rebecca Time. Rebecca Sugar, yeah. yeah. No, I think pretty much every show right now, whether even outside of Cartoon Network, a lot of the really big shows are Adventure Time alum. Because uh, OKKO, OK which I'm a big fan of on Cartoon Network, uh, is by Ian Jones Cordy, who is also an Adventure Time alum. What did he do on Adventure Time? I think he was another storyboard nice. guy, maybe. Uh, Hilda on Netflix. That guy, oh, really? The guy who wrote those graphic novels was a storyboard artist on a couple seasons of Adventure Time. Ah. Yeah. And it, everyone touched that show to some yeah. degree. Man, that makes sense. Yeah. I love Hilda. Hilda's a, if you guys have Netflix and you've not seen Hilda. Netflix is knocking it out of the park lately. I haven't watched Voltron yet, but I really want to. And She-Ra is great. And Hilda is great. And Dragon Prince is pretty good. Some people really like it, so you might. I still haven't watched Dragon Prince. I'm glad that the people, the more people from Avatar are doing more things. Yeah. That's always good. See, that's the thing. It's like, why didn't this happen with Avatar when it came out? Uh, it, it's the most criminal thing, isn't it? Because that was the, the thing we were all looking for when Avatar ended was like, who's going to pick up the gauntlet? No one? Cool. At least we got Korra. No one ever. Because Korra came on at a time when we were like, where's the Avatar of this Revolution, generation? Yeah. yeah well, how did that not change everything? But I don't know that Avatar... May, it's the thing I don't understand. I don't think Avatar sold the toys. Maybe. I don't know that it was as marketable. And growing up, I was always told that the way that uh, companies would measure the rate of success of an animated series was merch sales, toy sales, so on and so forth. Sure. That's why, you know, the DC and Marvel cartoons always did well because those characters will always sell. Yeah. And that's why Static Shock, among the DC ones, didn't sell because he didn't sell toys, even though the show was immensely popular. Mm-hmm. Really? Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, but in the age of ad revenue, where all of these channels, particularly Cartoon Network, are putting their episodes on their websites for people to watch on a delayed timeline, I don't know if that's the revenue stream anymore. And I really want to ask someone in the industry and find out because I'm fascinated. Any of you people that we have named, and also several other ones like Noel Stevenson, come on the show. Yeah, it's like. Honestly, when you think about it, like, how would you merchandise Avatar? It's not that easy compared to some other things. I remember toy commercials. Before I ever watched the show, I was like, that looks weird. Mm. And then there were the awful, awful video games. Oh, were there bad ones? There was one per season, and I tried one because I rented it from Blockbuster. And it was so bad, I got a thousand gamer score in it in five minutes. Because every achievement in that game was combos. Oh, okay. Was it like a fighting game? No. It was like how many, how high a combo can you get just in world combat? Mm-hmm. And uh, the one I got was based on book two. Uh, oh, okay. Obviously, if you're confused at this point, we're talking about Avatar: The Last Airbender, not James Cameron's Avatar. Yeah, not not blue people. Not blue people. There are no blue people on that show. Correct. Only astral blue occasionally. Yeah, I mean astral projections. Yeah, but those are always going to be blue. Usually, yeah. unless you're evil. That is purple or red, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Jafar genie. <laughs> That kind of natural projection, <laughs> kind of phenomenal cosmic power. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was based on book two. So when I got to the uh, the swamp level, and you know, we're just uh, you're fighting the vine monster dude without pants. When yeah, he, when he's a vine monster, and you're just throwing water bending discs at him. It was like hundred combo, two hundred combo, thousand gamer score unlocked. I'm done. I'm gonna return this to blockbuster now because gamer score still matters because it's 2006. <laughs> yep, I never had an Xbox, so I only vaguely know what you're talking about. Yep. Um, there were so many of those things back in the day. Just like, how how do I measure my skill against my friend's gamer score? Yeah. 
Yeah, the closest I can think of is in Kirby I Ride, they had achievements. Nice. And I unlocked all of them with my brother. Took forever. I don't know what else to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Bye. <laughs> Where can everyone find the Joey? You can follow me on the Facebooks. Yes. Because you have a, a business Joey Favola page. Yeah, I do. It's yeah. uh, If you just type in facebook.com slash chuchaka2112, <laughs> which is also my Instagram is chuchaka2112. Yes. Which is my YouTube channel is just Joey Favola. Where I upload there every like 10 years. Yeah. And that's chuchaka. C-H-U-C-H-A-K-A. Yes. 1-800-chuchaka. Yeah, that's most of my handles except for YouTube. Yeah. And then my Bandcamp is just Bandcamp, just Joey Frivola Bandcamp mm-hmm. or Edge of Reality Bandcamp or Kairos Bandcamp. There we go. And this show is brought to you by, because I own the business, Music City Makers, which is the previously mentioned creative co-op between myself and some friends where we make the things we want to make, like screen printed t-shirts and art prints. Going to be putting up some short fiction pretty soon. So we are on Etsy. At uh, for Music City Makers, we are on Twitter at Music City Maker because we can't get the S because someone hasn't tweeted in three years, and on Instagram at Music City Makers. And I guess we'll see you if we do this again. Bye. Bye.